This week is sponsored by IRM UK, a great data go- governance conference. Honestly, possibly the most stacked data governance conference I've ever seen, but uh, that's going to be in the UK in mid-March. There are lots of great speakers, including past Data Mesh Radio guests like Kendall Mari, Ole Ulysen Bagnu, Vanessa Erickson, Liz Henderson, and the data governance coach herself, Nicola Askham. We're going to be having uh, three episodes this week, two interviews and a panel on around data governance and MDM and things like that when it comes to uh, data mesh and kind of modern approaches to governance. So you can get a 10% discount to the conference if you use the code DM10, or you can just check the show notes for more information. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herleman, sponsored by Starburst. Starburst is a single platform to help you activate all your data, no matter where it lives. Check out our new Data Products for Dummies ebook to learn more about how your organization can utilize data products. To download your free copy, head on over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in ha- founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Get ready for an unparalleled experience in the world of data. Join us in London for IRM UK's Data Governance and Master Data Management Conference Europe, happening from the 11th to the 14th of March 2024. Immerse yourself in five dynamic learning tracks and explore real-world applications of master data management and data governance. With case studies and contributions from world-leading organisations, including Accenture, Bearing Point, BT, Capgemini, and many more. Plus, you'll get ample opportunity to forge invaluable relationships with over 250 attendees from across Europe and beyond. Don't miss this opportunity to elevate your understanding of data governance and master data management. Visit irmuk.co.uk forward slash DGMDM to view the full agenda, meet the speakers, and register today. Episode 287. Driving Data Value Through Creativity, Curiosity, Collaboration, and Communication. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Tian Kai Feng, who's the Data Strategy and Data Governance Lead at ThoughtWorks Europe. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Tian Kai's point of view. 
Number one, potentially controversial. Optimism is a really important thing in governance. You need to believe things can get better or you will likely get frustrated. I think this one might be controversial because I think a lot of people in governance are a little bit frustrated because uh, it's hard to maintain that optimism. Number two, it's crucial to make sure people actually get rewarded and recognized for doing the right things relative to data governance. Good governance is hard, so try to ensure you make it rewarding to do the right things for your data. Number three, data governance has a quote-unquote branding problem. So be prepared for resistance to partnering on governance, even if it's for good reasons. You know, to humans in the last episode as well, it's the same thing. Governance can be a, a bad word. It can be a four-letter word. Number four, at the end of the day, people are the ones using the data. It's not just the machines making the, the decisions off it. They, to make decisions to better empower people to make better decisions with their data. It sounds simple, but it's easy to lose that and focus on things like shiny new tech. Again, focus on the actual empowering the people. Number five, if you start by talking to the business pains of your business stakeholders, you know, let them tell you their pains too, and then agree to partner on addressing those pains relative to data, you can get them bought into doing data governance work. It's not about the governance. It's about business value creation and what they care about. So get them to tell you what they care about and then work backwards. Number six, internal mass communication about data governance doesn't have to be tricky. Talk about the why. Why are you doing data governance, not the how or the what? What can doing better governance mean for the business? What did one of your teams achieve through working, you know, better working with their data? Number seven, a lot of data governance value relies on people engaging and buying in. Focus on making people feel this governance stuff is important, but also not a huge burden. Data governance creates value, but if you focus on the rules and the guidelines, it will only feel like overhead to most. Number eight, oftentimes we worry about finding data owners, but someone is already doing that work. In, you know, in a domain, in a line of business, then it's only about making that ownership official and again, rewarding and recognizing them. But if no one in a domain is already owning data to some degree, you will often need to escalate to leadership to make it someone's responsibility. Ownership can be a scary thing. So sometimes you just have to say, someone has to do this. I'm not going to try and convince them. I'm going to make that actually part of their, their remit. Number nine, Solution-driven creativity is crucial to creating new approaches to business problems. Instead of what most people think of when they hear creativity, it's much more focused on creating new approaches to a problem instead of inventing things whole cloth, instead of, you know, kind of that spontaneous creativity. Number 10, potentially controversial, data is still a major struggle for most organizations. So even though it will be uncomfortable, we need to try new approaches. You have to get creative. Number 11, it's crucial we give ourselves the room to try something new and it not work. We need our organizations to do the same. Otherwise, we are stuck with approaches that just don't work that well because we can't try new things. We have to be able to fail, you know, to test, iterate, and learn. Number 12, quote, even in the age of AI, 
It's still human beings who are making decisions of actually using data in certain ways. So if we don't get behind the people using the data in the right way, then data is by definition just less valuable. I really like that point. Number 13, advancements in data are always great as long as people can use them. Make sure to focus a lot on upskilling and enabling your people to leverage the data. If no one uses the data, then it has no value. Actually, it has negative value because it has cost to create the data. Number 14, if you want buy-in for your further data work or initiatives, just keep bringing things back to business pains and opportunities. Data work is there to drive value. Focus on the things the rest of the organization values and how data work ties to those pains and opportunities. Number 15, data product thinking, right? Right now, most people are at best thinking in data products. Instead, we need them to understand product thinking and how that can be applied to data. The data product is simply the output. You know, personal note here, preach, amen, you know, so much. People just don't really get data as a product. Number 16, don't start conversations with what data people need, right? What, what's the data you need? No, get, get them talking about use cases first and then work out what data is needed to support those use cases. Just because data exists or could exist doesn't mean it will be useful. Like really get them to tell you what they're trying to do. Finally, number 17, potentially controversial. Data governance should be about enabling people to autonomously create value through data, but with the appropriate guardrails. Your business partners know, for the most part, what will create value. How do you enable them to do so while limiting risk and maximizing that value? Easier said than done, but the right focus area. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Tian Kai Feng here, who's a the data strategy and data governance lead for ThoughtWorks Europe. And uh, if you haven't seen on uh, LinkedIn, he's been putting up a lot of funny memes and stuff. So I do recommend following him just for that anyway. But we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, including uh, his, his personal journey going from data analyst and having a bunch of people kind of welcome into the room to being now data governance and people uh, trying to put up uh, barricades to prevent him from getting into the room, uh, as well as understanding the human side when it comes to data, especially data mesh. You know, why is the human side so important? But also, like, how do we think about actually getting that to be something that we can move forward with instead of just going, everybody's different and, uh, you know, how do we think about data product thinking and especially how does that that think about in data mesh and how do we prevent ourselves from going down that kind of data product factory approach and, and what is the concept of self-serve? What does it actually mean and what doesn't it mean? Because there's a lot of, it's the same thing with governance where it's a loaded term and people make assumptions and it maybe isn't the best. Then how do we think about autonomy and when it comes to data mesh and why is it so important? So 
hopefully we'll be able to get to most of that. Maybe not. But uh, before we jump into that, Tankai, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Uh, very happy to be here. Um, I'm Tankai. I think you said a lot about me already, but I, I would describe myself in a nutshell as a data leader by day, a musician by night, and an optimist at heart. And I'm saying these latter two things actually for two reasons, because um, when you work in data governance, I think optimism is really a needed skill because you have to actually believe that things can be better and get better and be persistent in optimism as well. And why I'm saying I'm a musician is not only because I do produce music, sometimes even related to data and stuff, but also um, it gives me that creative side where I think try to think out of the box and use creative methods to make data governance more approachable and more fun, and thereby basically getting buy-in in a better way as much as possible. So that's what I'm doing internally, externally with clients now as well. And yeah, I'm, I'm really focusing on that part to uh, drive data governance through creative and more empathetic methods. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's I think we have a lot of people that have done governance for a long time and they've become a little bit cynical. But at the same point, I do think they're cynical in certain ways because they've seen what does and what doesn't work, but also that you have to have that like, I like that optimistic approach. I, I might myself, maybe I couldn't do governance because I'm not uh, the, the biggest optimist, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about that. You know, yeah, as an analyst, he, people were welcoming you into the room. So it was easy to be optimistic, but you know, when you, you are that, that governance person, people are kind of pushing you away in, in a lot of senses or, or a lot of cases. How do you think about approaching that or how do you think about trying to flip that to get them to welcome you or how do you break through those barriers without just you know coming in with the the, the stick and saying you will comply here are your policies you must do what i say exactly uh yeah a very good point i mean i think uh, just for context i did come from a marketing analytics background right so Basically, it was exactly in that time when marketing became measurable, right? Web analytics, social media analytics, paid media analytics, all these kind of things popped up. And I was able to join that space very early on. So when I came with insights for all my marketing folks, basically marketing colleagues, and I could tell them, this is how you can improve and this is what works but doesn't work, everybody was super excited about it, making me one of the most popular people for any kind of reporting and any kind of retrospectives to just come in and like tell everybody how things work, right? So, um, as things progressed and um, data became more available and there was a lot more complicated data around, um, data quality became a topic, right? So I was one of the strongest advocates around to say we need good data quality because without good data quality, we cannot really do any good analysis, right? Garbage in, garbage out principle. And um, I was really vocal about complaining about data quality as well towards the data governance and data management teams. So at some point, um, I was actually asked to join the data governance space of things. And basically with a request, if I wanted to improve and solve issues instead of just complaining about them, do I want to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem, so to say? <laughs> and actually at that point, I was very curious and um, also very yeah, um, enthusiastic about trying it out and see how the other side looks like. And I quickly realized, of course, why it's so complicated and how data management is so complicated and so cross-functional that it's no wonder that it's so difficult to even find the responsible parties to do certain tasks and then actually get rewarded for it or get recognized for it in a certain way, right? And um, this having said, um, 
before I was trying to, um, I, I didn't even need to knock on doors. I was just invited in people's homes, uh, metaphorically, right, to tell them about insights as an analyst. And now as a data governance people, just to even have a first conversation to understand how things work, I needed to be much more persistent. And people were all a little bit like hesitant or distant to me all of a sudden and because they didn't know why data governance was knocking, basically. And I realized that data governance really has a branding problem. Right, because over decades it has been established as this authority and control function that is telling people not to do things and to always basically put stop signs everywhere and not as actually an enabler or like a facilitator for data to drive value. Right. And this is why I realized, okay, I need to probably make the effort myself to rebrand it, at least within the realm that I can control within my organization, basically. So I tried to do that with like creative methods, as I mentioned before, like music and talk shows and gamification trainings and so on and so on. And I think I came to one conclusion, which is if I start conversations as data governance with stakeholders by first asking them what their problems are and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day with data issues, then the follow-up to that would be talking about solutions and a much higher motivation to drive solutions together. Instead of saying, I'm governance and I'm controlling this and I'm asking you about what you're doing in that space, be, of course, uh, what I just described being a much nicer way to start the conversation. So really, um, I called that principle the follow the pain principle, right? You follow the pain and then you get buy-in and you get motivation to collaborate on it. And that pain can be um, very faceted in different ways, right? Like in regulatory pressure or like data quality issues and so on. But this is basically how I turn it around from resistance, using a more empathetic approach into still then being less resistant towards governance. Yeah, I think almost maybe even calling it like a data value facilitator or something like that, where, where they mm-hmm. just immediately go, oh, this person is here to uh, to help create value instead of hit me over the head with uh, the broom and tell me <laughs> I'm doing anything wrong. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I so I think you know this plays in well into the what we were talking about in the pre-call of the importance of the human side when it comes to data. So let let's kind of go into your three C's approach and and how do you think about you know getting someone on board to at least have that conversation, opening that door, you know, if not solving all their problems from day one, but like what are some tips or tricks that you would have for folks out there? When they're thinking about, okay, I want to rebrand data governance internally. I want to to be this thing that's gonna uh, that they're going to welcome me in, or at least not try and shove me out the door as fast as possible. Like, what do you talk to people about doing? Because it is different for every person, every conversation. So, would you have any kind of generalized things that you've kind of come to to work with, and even getting them to agree to the calendar invite? Absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, there's uh, basically when it comes to communication, right, which is one of the three C's that I'm talking about, so communication, collaboration, and creativity, right? When it comes to communication, um, there's the one-on-one converse- communication that you have where you want to understand a topic in a deeper way, right? And you need to have a proper conversation uh, just between two individuals, or you do it with a wider audience, either in team meetings, in bigger audiences, or like in these kind of newsletters towards everyone all of the stakeholders. And I think with the mass communication of with big audiences, there's a way for you to basically just rebrand data governance by talking about topics in a different way 
than before, right? So for example, instead of saying, this is how we do data governance with policies and rules and guidelines and templates, maybe talk more about the why, right? So we do data governance because this is how we could improve the data quality driving revenue up by 10%, or we could improve um, the regulatory um, pressure and we are now meeting all the regular requirements, passing certain audits, thereby avoiding the certain risks that we currently have, right? And if you start talking about data governance with the why instead of the how, then at least everybody gets on board because that should be a collective goal for the whole organization to have this in mind, right? And once they see that data governance things in value and not in rules and guidelines and not operational only, but strategically, then uh, at least there's a certain click, I would say, in your mind that changes your perception already slightly towards what data governance actually is. And again, right, when it comes to these one-on-one conversations, um, start in the same way. Um, if you introduce yourself, talk about the why instead of the how first. And then, as I said, right, first, maybe be a listener and just ask for issues, ask for what they are dealing with every day when it comes to data and what the challenges are. Um, I think, I mean, you mentioned that to me before, right, about data therapy being kind of a <laughs> skill set that we could have. I like that a lot because it does feel like that a lot, right? Like you're there and you're basically asking, tell me about your issues. How does it make you feel? And how are you coping with that? And like a lot of these questions, um, it's not only about understanding it, but it bonds you too, right? On a, a human level, it connects you because somebody is trusting you with their kind of complaints and their issues with it. And that is always a great start to then turn the conversation into a more fruitful and a more um, empathetic one. Yeah, I think, I think, you, you talked about two different aspects here, and I think there's the mass communication and the one-on-one communication, and people want there to only be the mass, right? They want, or they want the copy-paste between, I talked to this person, this person, and this person, and I got to say the exact same message between this person, this person, and this person, instead of listening first and adjusting, because they want the data to speak for themselves, so the data about the data should speak for itself, you know? And it's like... The data never speaks for itself and getting people to do the data work doesn't just speak for itself. You do have to say like, who are my key stakeholders? I get that that doesn't scale. I can't talk to every single person one-on-one, but I find my linchpins. I find the the people that have the leverage to get the other people on board to do that. So like you have to do a little bit more organizational theory approach and understanding how your organization works instead of just going like, you should all want to do data. It's like, okay, no, we have to give them some understanding and some incentives and some, some, so like, and you talked a little bit about that of making it rewarding to them and making it something that's of value to them to do. Like there's making it rewarding in that, that the data is better for them to leverage. But how do you think about talking about this a little bit on the ownership side as well, where you go, how how do we make this worth your while to own this data? You know, I, I hear a lot of different things, but I'm not hearing kind of a persistent framework because it is, again, a little bit of what's going to make it valuable to that person is different for each person. But like, how do you think about figuring out what's going to be a value when you think about what they need to do, not just what they need to leverage? Absolutely. Um, that's a great question. And I think exactly on that data or data domain ownership topic, it's a topic that has not been really solved yet, right? I think that is um, an evergreen struggling struggle for all of the people working in data mesh or data governance. And it's really tricky. 
I would say, though, that uh, in most cases, um, data owners or the right people that could be data owners are usually doing a part of that job already because they have an affinity towards working with data and they have a certain personal interest in uh, the topic of working in data as well, um, although they are not data professionals necessarily themselves, right? And um, once that is the case, um, telling them that what you're already doing is exactly what a data owner is probably should be doing. There's a little bit more, but how about making this just official? And you have the responsibility now, basically on paper, instead of just doing it informally, that would be a good point. But in certain domains, nobody is actually uh, uh, enjoying the part of dealing with the data and nobody wants to feel responsible. And that is much trickier. But I think um, either, um, first, I, I would say, make everybody understand the necessity of ownership, because um, I think at that point, then everybody knows that certain things are not working in the data domain, which is why, um, and due to certain, um, basically, reasons, right, behind, behind missing ownership. And um, then the next point would be to see if anybody can be convinced to be that way. And if that doesn't work, then unfortunately, some kind of escalation or some kind of uh, talking to leadership about the necessity of an ownership would probably work better. Um, but yeah, you have really different approaches, I would say, of how to convince people to become owners. Um, I would say it all starts with everybody understanding the necessity and the value of having one and then trying different approaches, I guess, to convince about it. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's difficult because exactly what you said as well of there are people that are already doing this, but if nobody in the domain is doing it, uh, that's from a data mesh perspective that's not the domain that you should probably be working with if they're, if nobody already knows how to do it and nobody's bought in that they want to move into doing it. And all. so it, but it becomes, it becomes a challenge because sometimes there just needs to be where you go, okay, even if we're not thinking data mesh, we are thinking regulatory. So somebody needs to deal with the regulatory and, and all of that. So how do you think about that creativity aspect? You know, you talked about collaboration and communication and then creativity. How do you think about creativity coming into data because people often think of data as yes or no black or white one or zero instead of it's telling a picture and that type of thing but how do we get people creative to get them engaged how do we get them creative to think about exploring new things like how do you engage people I know it's a, a broad question and it's difficult to, you know, you know, some specific examples or whatever is helpful, but like, how do you think about leveraging creativity to create value rather than just kind of some fun stuff? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, I would usually start with um, the quote from Einstein who said that if you just, if something doesn't work and you try the same thing over and over again, that's insanity, right? So you're just trying the same thing over and over and, and you just question, why doesn't it work? So um, creativity comes from a space where you just want something to change and you want to try something different to see if it works or not, right? So um, the thing is that when it comes to creativity, I think in like two different types of creativity, one is called solution-driven creativity and one is I would call spontaneous creativity, right? And I think with an art, you usually have that more spontaneous creativity where like all of a sudden you have a dream about something and next day you draw it as a um, picture or a painting somewhere, right? And this is like spontaneous creativity. 
But solution-driven creativity is much more what's common within the business space, right? So you have a problem and a clear problem statement, and now you want to develop a solution that has not been tried before because previous ways of solution just didn't work. So this is where you can get creative. And the thing is that when it comes to creativity, and I believe this is the main hurdle for everyone, that it does feel awkward, and there's always um, the fear that people might not like it or that people might frown upon you because you tried something in a different way than it was done before. And that's very normal because this is how creativity and being different works, right? But um, the more you do it, the less you would actually realize that you don't really lose that much, right? People, if people don't like it. It's not like you're being punished for it, right? It's just nobody cares. They might not engage with you, but then you can be creative in a different way again and try it in a different way. Especially in the data space, I think you cannot overdo creativity. There's so many different elements of data work that you can be creative in, right? It starts, it can be very operationally, like a whole code that you wrote and you just want to optimize it now a little bit and try different packages, either packages, and just do it in a better way and thereby having a new blueprint for more efficient coding next time, for example. Or it's much more a strategy that you have now created, a data strategy, and people somehow just don't understand it. So you need to like reshape it, visualize it differently, maybe use different wording, and then see again if now people understand it or not. That could also work. Or in your day-to-day, -day, right? If you realize that certain meetings are wasting your time, right? Um, just change up the nature of the meetings, right? Have maybe instead of many team meetings, just a few one-on-ones, and maybe everything becomes more efficient there. It's more about acknowledging where you can get creative, and then being bold enough to try to be creative. And the more you do it, then it becomes a habit to be creative, and then it becomes a default to be creative. And this should be the journey of a data professional that wants to be more creative over time. And how do you think about, you know, on that side as well, small steps of creativity, right? Where you don't go, hey, we're completely reinventing the wheel versus like, hey, we're changing the way we're doing things and we're testing and learning and iterating and that's what creativity is about versus we're completely inventing whole cloth, something new. Like, how do you think about communicating that? Because again, in data, it's been, is it right or is it wrong? What do you mean you're trying something new? Does that mean everything we've been doing is wrong? You know, like there's just these perceptions that are completely wrong about data, but they're the way most people think about us data people and data in general. Um, yeah, I would say... Um, where it's the smallest step that you can take is reviewing a certain routine that you have, right? Like it might be either, again, like just uh, regular meetings. It might also be um, a certain code that you're running uh, on a regular basis, right? Or like a certain data pipeline. And, um, and where you realize that you, it could be better, right? So you know that it could be better. Um, it's not critical for it to be get better. Otherwise, you would have worked with it already. But you want to try to be creative with it, right? So... Pick one of those smaller use cases in your day-to-day -day and just really be creative and give yourself the space to be creative and be confident to say that even if this fails, at least I learned what doesn't work too, right? Like be ready for it to be potentially also fail, but don't let it become a hurdle. Just give yourself the time and the space to try something new, right? And if it works, then you at least know how it feels to have been creative and to have failed or to be successful or not. And from there, you can try a bigger use case next time and even bigger and bigger until you basically get more and more comfortable over time. Um, but again, right, um, reflection, I think, is one of the key points to start with being creative because you need to know what you're being creative with 
and know that this is bringing value as well. Yeah, I think, well, I think that dovetails nicely into what we were planning on talk about as well of like, how do we measure, not, not specifically exactly how do we measure, but how do we think about proving out that there is value in engaging in the human sides of data, in engaging in these creativity aspects, and in thinking about that this actually isn't just fun, which, you know, fun can improve people's mental well-being and all that stuff, and so that they want to stay with an organization longer and blah, blah, blah. But that there's a little bit more of a tangible like, hey, us investing in the human side of data rather than the platform side, that the human side is rewarding and not just intrinsically rewarding, but financially rewarding. How do you think about having that conversation, especially maybe in one of these, uh, you know, you're you're in Germany. I don't mean to throw any German listeners under the bus, but it's, it's <laughs> not necessarily considered the most fun of uh, cultures. It's a little more stodgy of a business culture and things like that. So how do you think about you know, those kinds of, of approaches. And how do you think about like communicating this and getting people on board that this actually does have that incremental value and that it's not just, you know, some data people deciding to write fun Christmas songs like you did uh, this year? Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, again, it starts with a why, right? And the why is pretty simple because um, we all know that data should be valuable, but data can be only valuable if it's being used. And so far, even in the age of AI, it's still human beings who are making decisions of actually using data in certain ways, right? So if we don't get the people behind using the data in the right way, then data is by definition just less valuable, right? And the other side of the coin means that um, investing into technology is usually a good idea to be a cutting edge and to be up to speed with like the world. But technology as it is, is still a tool that amplifies and efficiently makes human work more efficient, so to say, right? And um, if the human being is not wanting to use that tool or is not familiar with the tool or just has a very different image of what tool should be used, then again, that technology will fail because it's not going to be adopted and it doesn't fit to the culture or the human aspect of what is in there. So the setting said, this is for me always the why, and this is why I start convincing people that we should never forget about the human side, because otherwise investing into tech that nobody's using is just a big failure, right? It's just a money dump, basically. Um, but this and having said, what does actually the human side mean and where where does re value come from, right? And I think um, I like to think at individual and in like organizational level, right? So an individual level, um, I believe that every employee or team member is looking to have an effect or an impact on, on the work they're doing, right? And if they work with data, they want to know that this is actually reaching the goals that they had in mind for the data and that the technology, for example, or everything they're touching in the data is supporting that goal in the best way possible and they are comfortable with it, basically. And if we scale that up and everybody feels that way, then you have at some point a better culture too, right? Because then everybody is... Um, knowing how to use certain tools and certain uh, processes and certain methods to deal with the data. Um, but everybody's also very excited about um, any new things and innovations to really go with the change. And um, this leads me to, I think, the last point, which is change management, right? I think a lot about data work right now is actually change management, right? Because the data landscape and the requirements towards data and the data use cases are developing in a super rapid speed these days, um, 
without change, we will not be able to drive value with data anymore, right? So that ends up on the human space too. And when it comes to change management, again, the human side is the most difficult, right? Because human beings don't want to be changed. They want to change on their own. So you have to start with them understanding the value first and then actively driving the change versus trying to force them to be part of the change. And this is why having a more nuanced approach towards the human side with upskilling and education and communication and all these kind of things um, is really important for any kind of um, data or technology products. Yeah. Well, especially when you were talking about that technology as an amplifier, if there's if there's zero use, zero times whatever amplifier is still zero, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. So like uh, what you were just saying there as well dovetails nicely into what we were planning on talking about, about encouraging learning and growth to create more value leverage for the organization. Like, how do you think about getting the organization to buy in that you should be investing in data literacy and things like that? But how do you also convince other people that it's going to be good for them for their their roles as well as their careers and their lives and things like that? Like, how do you think about both sides as to getting people bought in that that dealing with data and understanding how to deal with data is actually going to be a benefit because the reason why I push back on this a lot, people have been told data is the new oil, you know, data is this, data is that. The classic, yeah. For so long and it hasn't really manifested. So like there's skepticism there. So how do we think about not falling into the same trap of everybody's doing data. You're going to be so, you know, amazing with this. And you're going to, you know, you're going to be out of business in five years if you're not doing data, blah, blah, blah. Like people are sick of it. So like, how do we think about that actually being a useful conversation that's going to drive things forward as well as for the individual? Absolutely. I think actually um, that's a really nice link to what I mentioned before as follow the pain, because I would say that um, in any organization, there's certain issues um, with data already happening, right? And um, when, you, when it comes to buy-in and you can resurface these issues and quantify them with business impact, then have you have a really strong case to say, look, we currently have these kind of data issues that is costing us so and so much more money and we are losing so and so much more revenue because of that data issue that if we would invest a little bit into it, it was sustainably actually make it better and we would be much more profitable over time, just for example, right? But to have that input, you need to talk to the stakeholders that are actually facing these topics um, operationally, right? And this is where you then can get both sides. You take the information you have from the operational stakeholders, you resurface it in a business impact way to get buy-in from senior leadership. But with senior leadership, again, you can open the doors to more operational stakeholders, and then it becomes a cycle where you get more and more transparency and more and more buy-in, and you prioritize the work in a better way. I think this is where, uh, in contrast to what you said, right, data being the new oil is a very generic and overused statement at this point in time. The, but if you make it more specific towards your organization and towards the reality of your uh, enterprise and your leaders and your stakeholders, then it at least is um, undeniable for them, right? It becomes a thing where they cannot unhear it and they need to deal with it. Otherwise, they have consciously decided to not deal with it, even knowing what's on the table, basically. <laughs> and this is usually uh, the best motivation to then get everybody on board and to really work with you 
to uh, make it better. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a little funny because uh, I was thinking about this earlier today of my past role. I was the cost manager for cloud costs at, at a public company. And a lot of people assumed that my role was to prevent as much cost as possible. And that's not what a manager does. A manager manages. And so it was to be as efficient with our spend as possible. So like we had this performance issue where we, um, our Elasticsearch clusters were getting overwhelmed because we just didn't have enough storage. And the storage was relatively expensive because they were very, very large disks and things like that. And, you know, I went and I went to our FP&A team and I said, here are the three reasons why we're going to have to spend $100,000 more a, a year than we were expecting. You know, we're going to have to bump that up in the next, you know, week on this. And because of these reasons for our performance reasons, and here's the the issues with the performance, here's where we've had degradation and all that. And they went, yeah, absolutely. That's the right call. Then I went back to the the engineering team and I said, okay, so we're going to spend more on this stuff. And they're like, why, why would you do that? And it's like, I, the data says, this is what we should do. Like, what, what are we trying to do with the data? Are we trying to do data work or are we trying to do what's best for the business? Let's talk to the business about what's best for the business. Get them to tell you what's best for the business. And then, you know, is it to maximize quality? No, it's never to maximize quality. It's always to get to the quality level that we need. It's to get our people bought it. It's... Eh, those conversations get so lost and, and nuanced that it's 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 frustrating. So, um, absolutely, yeah. So I, I want to transition into the concept of of data product thinking and and do you think that there's a difference between, um, you know, thinking about data products, data product thinking, and like how do we think about actually or like is there a difference between product thinking in data and data product thinking as well like how do we start to to get into is that just semantics or is it should we start to say like product thinking in data because the product thinking is the part that matters rather than thinking about data products like how do you think about that kind of that concept and that approach it's a very interesting question i would say that um just given the literature and the state of the industry that data product thinking is mostly driven by the technical definition of what data products are, right? Like with the input force and output force and ownership and um, teams behind it and how it's managed and self-service in many cases with data mesh and how that is defined. But what I would say is the more human aspect of it is actually what you mentioned as the product thinking within data. And I mean product then not as a data product anymore, but even the actual traditional aspect of what a product is within commercial aspects of selling products in retail, for example, right? And then it becomes much bigger than just thinking as a, as a technical concept. It becomes a way of how you deal and manage the product um, within the organization to drive value with it in the best way, right? So if we think in retail products, for example, then you want to sell it to as many people as possible, right? And thereby you drive value and thereby with more adoption, you get more commercial aspects to it and this is how you are successful. But to get there, you're doing a lot of planning and market research, for example, right? So you start with design thinking by identifying your key audience and what their problems are, and then develop the right product for their needs, right? You do some market research through interviews, or you can do surveys as well to really get a proof point for it. 
you would manage a product over a life cycle, for example, right? Knowing when it's peak adopted and you knowing also when it needs to be retired at some point because there's a better product on the market or the world has changed and that product is just not needed anymore. Um, after people using it, driving satisfaction and loyalty, for example, for your product as well. And then also measuring profitability, right? The whole thing about how much you're investing and how much value you're getting out of the product should also be part of it. So um, I would say, and again, this is just me because I've been working in marketing analytics. So I, I come from a lot of product marketing experience as well and knowing how this side works, where I feel like in many cases, there's a missed opportunity to apply the bigger product thinking from the retail traditional space onto data products as well, that I think would make our work with data products much more efficient and effective as well. How do you think about actually communicating that? Because I've been, I've been hammering on product discovery and product marketing and all of these things that are super crucial to data, internally, externally, all that stuff. But like, how do we think about extracting needs and, and wants because when I tell anybody, would you like this data, 99% of the time they're going to say yes, because more data always means more information and therefore that's better, isn't it? Versus cost benefit. And you don't go, would you like this data? And then they go, yeah. And then you go, well, what are you going to use it for? Versus like, you know, how do you think about extracting what's going to be valuable where you don't have to come up with all the use cases of the data that you have, because other people are going to have interesting things that you might not have thought about. But like, how do you think about sparking that, that conversation to figure out what is the art of the possible? What would be useful? What is potentially valuable? Because I, I'm just, when I'm, when I'm trying to dig into that with people in a one-on-one conversation, I'm I, you know, I'm going to pat my own shoulder. I'm amazing at this because I, I am just constantly going like, wouldn't this be interesting? Wouldn't this be interesting? Wouldn't this be interesting? Okay. Let's talk about why there's a difference between interesting and valuable. Let's talk about that. But like, how do you think about getting, you know, this is a, a crucial aspect of that kind of value facilitation aspect of governance. How do you get things going? How do you do that without setting yourself up to have to go, okay, I'm going to deliver on this thing that may not be valuable simply because I suggested it. Right. Um, that's a really great question. I would say, actually, that um, talking about what data may or may not be needed uh, as a start of a conversation is already misleading, probably, the goal of the conversation because it already talks about uh, making data available without even having thought about the value at that point in time, right? So. Um, I would say to facilitate data products, don't even start with what data do you want, but start with what use cases do you have that drive value where you would need data to do it, right? And once you have that, then the expert that actually knows about what data is related to that use case would decide on what data is needed for it and not the use case owner themselves, who usually is, let's say, a less data literate or data fluent person than a data expert, right? So... Um, I would say, again, right, just start the conversation with how do we use data to drive value instead of what data do we want and need um, and have it rather in the sequence by talking about the why and then about the how again first that would then shape the conversation better. And I think one of those benefits would then be since we talked about the why of the data product and you had confirmed that as a data user to me that you're using it for the use case. Once we have that data product, then you have to actually tell me that you have used it. Otherwise, I've, did that, I've created that product for nothing, right? 
because you said you're going to use it for that use case. And it becomes then a confirmation cycle of saying, okay, we committed together that I'm going to deliver this for you to be able to do this. So we have to do this in hand in hand. And then you also have collaboration in place. But it connects you with an objective rather than uh, I'm servicing you and um, then you do with it whatever you want. And this is what, again, where I think um, data products should be then more of a co-creative, collaborative effort in that sense, rather than just one party servicing the other one. Yeah, it's, it's uh, getting out of that service mindset of that ticket, you know, kind of um, versus, yeah. But but then you also start to get into with Data Mesh trying to get away from that. It's the data team doing this and it it becomes very complex. But I think a lot of what you're talking about is just like, find the value of doing data. It's not in doing data. It's in serving the use case. It's in delivering to something that matters and that the va- the data supports that rather than the data is the point. So, but like, I, I think that that helps as well into kind of one of the, the last couple of topics. I don't know that we'll be able to get to both, but maybe, you know, do you want to talk about what does self-serve mean and what it doesn't mean? Or did you want to talk more about the autonomy when it comes to data mesh and why it's important? Which 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 of the two? I think we've only got time for to cover one of those. Which do you think is more interesting for you to kind of wrap up around? Uh, I think potentially combining them uh, from a governance lens and just uh, thinking about it, right? So um, I think just to, again, talking about how governance is a rebranding, but um, I would say that governance is not necessarily there to stop self-servicing or stop autonomy, Right. It's there to enable value by putting the right guardrails on it. So we're avoiding risk and we are maintaining a certain level of interoperability and efficiency across what we're doing. And if we think about it just more philosophically, um, right, is every anybody really actually free and doing whatever they want? Because even just in society, we have laws and we have human rights, right? It's not like everybody can just do whatever they want. And we're all fine with it. And we know that these rules are there for a reason, right? And with governance, I hope we can get to the space where there's always a case, right? So like, as in, we are enabling you to be autonomous. You can self-serve yourself and create your autonomous data product. But th- please stick to these rules because they're, they exist for a reason and make sure that you're sticking to these guidelines. And then within those guidelines, do whatever you need to do. It should be fine. And we're all in the same boat, so to say. Um, so basically, I would not see it as a complete freedom, as in, honor key, right? It's more about putting the right guardrails on self-servicing and autonomy and thereby having the right balance between, um, let's say, avoiding risks and driving value in the most efficient way. Yeah. it's What I've heard some people talk about as well is that we're going to have the things, the guidelines, not even necessarily a ton of guardrails in certain ways. But if you go outside of the guidelines, then you're off the guardrails and therefore you take on the risk. So we're going to provide the things. And if you really want to go off the rails, it's on you. Absolutely. Like, don't do something stupid. And so, you know, regulatory risk, you're the one that gets in trouble, not not the, you know, the governance folks. But it's tough to kind of shift that. But when, when you, I mean, one question that I would have here is you talk about self-serve and what you were talking about was much more the producer side. How do you think about how, because people are hurting themselves with self-serve on the consumer side, right? Because they're getting to data that they don't understand and they're like, okay, the data exists. So how do you think about that actually playing well? Like what should self-serve mean when it comes to the consumer side as well? Yeah. 
Um, it's an interesting one because when it comes to uh, wrong data usage, either you have a lack of confidence or you have uh, overconfidence. <laughs> That's usually the range you have, right? So um, I assume that this is the data that I should be using. So I'm going to do whatever I need to do with it, no matter if I understand it or not. Or I don't know what's in that data. I don't dare to touch it. I'm going to leave that alone. And then let's see what happens, <laughs> right? So the, the bridge to um, basically ensure that we somehow end up in the middle is, um, of course, the right documentation and metadata management and making it transferable, accessible, discoverable for everyone, right? The whole uh, shebang about like metadata management, basically. Uh, but that still doesn't solve that people should know to look up things before they're using it, right? So um, I think that really comes down to a cultural element, right? As in that data consuming is not only about knowing how to consume it, but you have the responsibility to know what you're consuming and why you're consuming it too, right? Just a more conscious and a more educated usage of data rather than a naive and uninformed one. That should be the key. So when we talk about data literacy, for example, or upscaling data users, let's give them both, right? Not only the methods and the access, but also where to look up things and what responsibilities they have to actually do the right thing with it as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a great place to kind of uh, wrap up in general the conversation. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to or any specific kind of topic you or any point you want to hit as, as we're heading into the wrap up here? Uh, not really. Maybe just one thing, which is a creativity one more time, right? I would love to see data professionals becoming more creative inside or outside the organizations just in the ways they're um, managing things, dealing with things, communicating things, because I think we really need it. And we have the benefit of data being already stereotyped in a certain way of being the boring and dry stuff. So any type of creativity, I think, will be much more welcome in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you, um, as I mentioned, that you make some uh, some pretty funny posts on LinkedIn. But where's kind of the best place to follow up? Anything specific you'd like people following up about? Uh, yeah, I, LinkedIn is great. Um, I also then have a YouTube channel where I put some of my data music videos on there, too. Um, so if people want to check that one out as well, um, it's also linked on my LinkedIn um, account, though. Um, that would be nice. Um, and yeah, uh, glad to talk to anyone who's interested in the human side of data more or wants to talk about memes or music about data as well. <laughs> well, uh, and we'll drop links to those in the show notes so people can easily find the, your LinkedIn as well as your YouTube channel. But again, Tian Kai, thank you so much for spending the time here with me today. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Thank you. I again like to thank my guest today, Tian Kai Feng, Data Strategy and Data Governance Lead at ThoughtWorks Europe. You can find a link to his LinkedIn and his YouTube in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Datastacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month -month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about, like, going through purchasing and things like that. 
The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.